There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello? Hello? <clears throat> Podcast Network Asia. Welcome to She Talks Peace a podcast that highlights the role of women peacebuilders around the world in bringing lasting peace and security to their communities. Eavesdrop into their conversations and get to know their stories. From the Philippines to Malaysia, from Indonesia to Palestine, from Myanmar to the United States, their dreams and their hopes for a world without violence and a world where every woman and girl can be whoever she wants to be. Hosted by Amina Rasul Bernardo, President of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy, and Dina Zaman, a Malaysian journalist and co-founder of Iman Research. This is She Talks Peace. Hello, around the world. Welcome to She Talks Peace. This is Amina Rasul of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy from Manila. And my co-host... Hi, salam from Magi Kuala Lumpur. This is Dina Zaman from Iman Research, Malaysia. Dina, there are two amazing, one very tragic uh, developments happened in the past few days. First, there's your politics, your PM <laughs> resigning. Oh my goodness. And second, very tragic what's happening in, in Afghanistan. So first, let's go to the not-so-tragic uh, development. What's going on in KL? Okay, so uh, as you know, our former prime minister, who's now a caretaker prime minister, resigned yesterday, right? Because he didn't have the votes and there was a lot of uh, loss of confidence in his leadership. So today, we saw, we Malaysians actually saw a lot of the ministers, whether they were oppositionists or not, right, mm. uh, rushing to the palace. And the latest was that Bloomberg actually reported that uh, they would have to vote for the next prime minister of Malaysia via WhatsApp. So I don't <laughs> know. Uh, I mean, uh, it's become like this <laughs> comedy of errors. You know, you're like, is this politics? That or is so interesting. Like, yeah, so if you were to ask me right now, what is Malaysia looking for? Initially, I thought, okay, if you, were going, if you had asked me this two, three days ago, I'd say we want a new strategy, a new leadership, et cetera, et cetera. But with what's happened right now, I think, you know what? The current government, which resigned yesterday also, whoever mm. is in power at that, should start putting into motion the processes to implement reforms mentioned. We need to accelerate the vaccination, the COVID response. We need to actually look at our small, medium, you know, enterprises, businesses which are tanking right now. These reforms are not bargaining chips. And their implementation should not be hinged on whether the current government will be in power or not. Right. Obviously, we don't have government right now. And lastly, Amina, which you've been asking me, Parliament hasn't start, hasn't reconvened. It should immediately. So that's a lot that we have to do in Malaysia right now in the last 48 hours. Ah, Dina, if only you had more women in power in Malaysia. Mm. But, you know, uh, we've always seen Malaysia as the stable one, politically and economically. Yes. But Wow. Things have certainly changed from your previous prime, no, no, the previous previous prime minister to the return of uh, Mahathir to, to what's going on today. Whereas we in Manila were still focused on COVID problems, yeah, and well, this uh, has cropped up quite uh, recently, cropped up again. Demands for our health secretary to resign. And the demands have become quite deafening. 
because of charges of corruption, gross inefficiency. These are these are the main issues against him. But you know what's really strange? Yeah. President Duterte is still defending his health secretary, even though the Commission on Audit has come up with uh, a report saying that there are irregularities within the disbursements in the Department of Health at a time when you yeah. need all the money to go to medicine and health workers uh -huh. and you know protection of the people from this uh, pandemic. The way our government has handled the pandemic is certainly going to be an issue in uh, the elections. But um, what gives me hope, civil society groups, they're now drumming up more support for voter registration. And we're still targeting 7 million uh, registrants before the deadline uh, crops up yeah. next month. And I'm also very encouraged because Philippine civil society are also coming together to call on voters to be wiser in choosing the next uh, the next president. So interesting times, but it will get more interesting next year, Dina. Wow. Well, personally, you know, I know a lot of people have mentioned that Malaysia is a Southeast Asian success story. And I yep. don't deny we have had successes, but I think this last two years, we've actually seen, and COVID exposed this, right? The yeah, gaps yeah. in governance, the gaps in how we do things. Um, you know, recently we conducted a focus group discussion with another think tank called RESA, and we mm -hmm. talked to business owners. And what surprised us was, the financial industry in Malaysia, the banking industry in Malaysia, it's, it does not support the needs because of how it was structured, you see. So when we heard that, when we talked to the bankers who were part of this, we thought, okay, obviously then you'll have to change the whole ecosystem. And yes. you know, maybe it's time for us to look at other countries in the region. Uh, you know, maybe there's karma, you know, because we got a bit too lax, right? We got a bit yeah. too arrogant for far too long and I really do believe the Philippines, Indonesia, Myanmar and so forth have a lot to teach us. When it comes to people empowerment, you know, civil yeah. society, uh, women empowerment, yes, I think the Philippines and Indonesia uh, have a lot to, to share. But when it comes to, well, can't, you can't deny it, Dina, when it comes to political stability, Malaysia has had quite stable uh, elections. And when it comes to the economy, I mean, you've had a very good run. So there's also much we can learn from you. But when, when we look at developments in our region, there is much Southeast Asia, Philippines, Malaysia, Indonesia can share with the uh, the whole world, which is something that I kept uh, stressing. Why, when they look at reforms in the Middle East and North Africa, don't the development partners come to us in Southeast Asia? Because we can have a lot of sharing on yeah. uh, reforms, empowerment within Islamic, within the Islamic faith, and uh, having success from the grassroots level. To, to the national level. And that really brings us to the next uh, hot topic, the withdrawal of the U.S. in Afghanistan. Oh, yes. And uh, the chaos that's uh, occurring. I, Dina, I really worry about our sisters there. You know, there are several of them in, in our alliance, the Women's Alliance for Security Leadership. I actually emailed them, but have had no response and I don't think they can actually. I'm sure that their telecommunication systems are already controlled or, or, or ineffective. And I really worry, especially after I heard this young female mayor, Sarifa uh, uh -huh. Ghazari of uh -huh. Maidan Shar, who said that she will stay in spite of the fact that the president fled the country, and she will just have to wait for the Taliban to come and get her and kill her. What's going to happen to 
women and girls under under the Taliban, Dina? I think this is why we're having this podcast, you know, Amina. Uh, before we reveal who our guest is tonight, I mean, politics, war, foreign interventions, peace building, I mean, there's so much to talk about. And I think what's happening in Afghanistan right now is very shocking. Yeah, I see people actually responding on my Facebook wall. And I consider them very politically astute. And they're now actually saying, we never knew about this about Afghanistan. We knew about the Taliban, but we never knew mm. about the politics mm-hmm. of Afghanistan. And in that sense, that's good because people now are actually saying, speaking up, you know, and I was reading in New York Times, the comment section, how people are saying, America, you brought this upon yourself, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Went to Vietnam, you name it, right? And how many more times are you going to repeat? And, uh, you know, for example, I think also that when you mentioned about Middle East and people, you know, donors not referring to Southeast Asia, I think that you're right. We have to work together. And I don't think even you and I would have met if not for the support or the presence of ICANN. That's and, right. Uh, yeah, I think that's how we met. It's just, yes, that's and, true. You know, ICANN is a women-led NGO which promotes inclusive and sustainable peace in countries affected by violent conflict extremism, militarism, and closing the political space. Mm-hmm. You know, ICANN has been a godsend for for many of us. Oh, by the way, for those who don't know, this is the International Civil Society Action Network, or ICANN. Yeah, we women can. And um, what I like about the work that ICANN has done, apart from bringing together and supporting this Women's Alliance for Security Leadership, which is in over 40 countries from Afghanistan to to Yemen. Mm -hmm. ICANN does well in trying to shape and influence peace and security policies of uh, governments, um, the UN and multilateral organizations and the wider international community. Yeah, it's excellent at providing thought leadership, strategic advice, uh, gender responsive analysis, and uh, and guidelines. And we're so lucky, Dina, that um, we were able to get uh, the founder of uh, ICANN to yeah. join us. And let me just say something about um, about the founder, Sanam. Uh, Naragi Anderlini. She definitely is not a stranger to to the two of us, but to our friends who are listening. I actually met Sanam, my goodness, more than 20 years ago when when I was in D.C. for for a meeting, I think with with Ambassador Swami Hunt at Hunt's Alternatives. And since then, I have actually followed Sanam's rise with awe because at the time I wasn't really a women's advocate yet or a peace advocate. I was a democracy advocate. And Sanam over the last two decades has become known as a peace strategist working globally on conflicts, crisis, violent extremism and very well known now for the foundation of ICANN and the establishment of the Women's Alliance for Security Leadership. And you know what? She has served on the steering board, the steering committee of the United Kingdom's National Action Plan on Women, Peace and Security, the Commonwealth's Panel of Experts on Countering Violent Extremism, UNDP, which is very familiar to all of us in Southeast Asia, UNDP Civil Society Advisory uh, Network for all the work that she's done, including being a director at the Women, Peace and Security Center of uh, the London School of Economics. She's been awarded the most excellent order of the British Empire. I don't know if we should call her lady or or something like that, but she has an, an MBE. So let's right. uh, welcome our dear friend. Welcome to She Talks Peace, Sanam. Thank Hi, you. Sanam. Hi, how are you? Yeah. So nice to see, 
to hear your voices and and to see Dina on on camera and um I just miss you guys so much. Uh I mean I think one of the first times we met we were talking about America's Got Talent or one of those yep. shows. You and your mom were yes. so into, into it. It was it was brilliant. <laughs> That is true. I I look forward to those light moments because every single day it seems that we're we're grappling with with heavy, heavy, heavy issues. Like last April, Sanam, um, you and ICANN spearheaded an open letter to the friends of uh, Afghanistan and champions of the women, peace and security agenda. And the letter reminded the U.S. and the West that in Afghanistan, and let me quote you, you have sacrificed the lives of your soldiers and dedicated considerable resources to the cause of peace rooted in fundamental principles of human rights, especially the rights of women and girls for a dignified and full life. And and the, the letter goes on to say that, um, you know, uh, you want them to stay true to the words. We ask that you stand by your words. But Tanam, this week, everything has has fallen apart. What have you heard about our sisters? Are they safe? What's going to happen to women and girls in in Afghanistan, Tanam? Thank you. Um, thank you, Amina. It's... Um... So as you can imagine, it's it's an unbelievably difficult time for everybody, um, mainly because of the chaos and the uncertainty. So there is a lot of fear. Um, a lot of our partners who were doing you know, a lot of media and public talking and so forth have now had to um, quieten down because of fear of reprisals against their families and threats um, for, for people that are in Afghanistan, uh, th both those that are there and those who, who um, have had to move abroad in the past. Um, so, so at the moment, at a time when we really need their voices, they are unable to speak. So we have to speak on their behalf. And, and so to, for, for us at ICANN, this has become one of the issues that we, that we deal with that every morning, you know, we're covering the news. We're talking to people behind the scenes. We're getting mm -hmm. the news from the ground and then um, and then being the voice in, for them in, in in whatever media that 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 we can reach. Um, it, I think that among you know the, the emotions, it's, it's an interesting thing. Somebody asked me, well, you know, what are what are people feeling? And I think that there is a profound sense of anger and. Yeah. Um, just, you know, fury for the reason that all these years, you know, going back from the beginning, 20 years ago, first of all, the Americans used the excuse of women's rights to go in. I mean, that was the, right. that was the primary kind of excuse that they sold to the American public. Laura Bush went on radio and said, oh, yeah. you know, Taliban. And we, we all knew that that was not the, you know, it was just, mm -hmm. they were just used for women, but, but they went in and, you know, people have forgotten the story, the history. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, the Taliban was a fairly ragtag group of fighters. They were guerrilla mm -hmm. fighters. They barely had any, you know, sophisticated equipment or anything like that. Um, Iran actually worked with the U.S. to pinpoint where they were together with the Northern Alliance to then route them and push them back and get rid of them. And sort of the state building, you know, the Americans always say oh, we're not into nation building. We're not into state building. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing to be sitting in a country for 20 years in alliance with the neighboring country, right. Pakistan, which has been housing and feeding and funding and yeah. arming yeah. Um, the Taliban, which is not only killing, you know, is not only sort of creating chaos in Afghanistan, but is actually killing American soldiers. Mm -hmm. And then to have Qatar come in in 2008 and actually recognize the Taliban as a legitimate political force, let them mm -hmm. fly their flag and, and, and then start these negotiations and as all this was happening, Afghan women peace builders, our partners, were constantly right. reporting on what's going on on the ground, why the security forces aren't working as they should be. Right. You know, we hear, oh, they're so well equipped and they're so well trained. Well, they weren't being paid. Half of them were illiterate, that the trainings themselves were a problem. The other day I was looking at something and all these years the Americans have used interpreters, but there was no real kind of quality control around who was interpreting what. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of money that has gone in and they keep saying, 
oh, we spent $88 billion on the, on the Afghan army, but actually the U.S.'s own um, special investigator has consistently said so much of the money is wasted, so much of the money that goes to contractors and corruption. Corruption. And so the levels of corruption that they enabled, you know, they, they had their own people say that the right. CIA was, was going into the presidential palace during the Karzai administration with bags of cash. And all of this was going on. Afghan women peace builders were on the ground. They were trying to make things work. They kept saying, let us into the rooms where negotiations are happening. We mm-hmm. don't want us, our rights to be on the table to be negotiated away. We want to be at the table right, right. to fight for our own, own rights. We didn't, the world didn't do it. The Americans didn't do it. The Qataris didn't do it. The UN didn't do it. Nobody did enough. Yep. Nobody listened and heeded that, their advice. And now with the mess that's going on, everybody wants to subtly talk to Afghan women. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Yeah. You know. And um, it looks like in some areas, you have got women taking to arms. Saying they, that they're going to defend themselves from from the Taliban who will come. Oh, Dina, can you just imagine that happening in Malaysia? No, I can't imagine that happening in Malaysia, Amina. I mean, as I said earlier, you know, for a lot of Malaysians, right, what's happening in Afghanistan now is a real upscaling of the education about the country. Yeah? yeah. And for people like, you know, I will be frank, as I said many times before with Iman and for many Malaysians, you know, Peace building is very new, you know. Uh, but it does make you start asking, you know, checking your privilege. You you start getting all this uh, WhatsApp from people who thank God that we live in Malaysia despite our crazy politics. We're not like Afghanistan. And then they start, but yes, but I wish you could have done this a bit more tactfully, you know. But then, you know, I, I, I can't be correcting everyone. But if there was something that... Uh, you know, Amina and I have been discussing Sanam, right? Well, many of our sisters, including the both of us, are just watching what's happening in Afghanistan, in Yemen also, and other countries in great horror. How can we, in ASEAN, right? How can we help together, you know, with ICAP? What can we offer? You know, we have so many mm-hmm. women peace builders, right? ICAN needs a president in Southeast Asia, so we've got to work on that. But how do we bring all our skills together to help each other? Yeah, you know, um, uh, here's here's what I worry about, right? Afghanistan was in Afghanistan until um, we had a flood of Saudi money and spread into top Pakistan and, and, you know, and, and kind of creating what was the Mujahideen and, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of ideology. Right. So so what I worry about is that um, there is a tendency to think, oh, it's just there that these things happen. You know, it's only yeah. it's their culture. It's not. It's right? not culture. First of all, culture changes all the time. Secondly, you you both live in countries where you've seen how Islam has been distorted and how this extremist ideology has spread and. Yeah. And how it targets women or how women suddenly think, you know, young, especially younger women suddenly think, oh, they must be covered in a certain way or they must dress in a certain way because that's the real Islam that we need to push back against that because that is not um, 
this extremist, this extremism going into the mainstream is the first sign of danger of, yeah. of, of how countries can can um, can devolve and, and how um, especially pluralistic countries. Right. We all come. I'm, I'm Iranian by background, you know, Philippines, Malaysia. We have deep history of pluralism. Pluralism means we, you know, tolerance and, and accept not just tolerance. Right. Acceptance. Right. Um, these extremist ideologies actually sort of come in and they start to sow division. Right. And, and that's really important to, to, to be, be aware of. Um, the, the fact that, that, you know, we look at Afghanistan and, and um, it's a very strange kind of duality because on the one hand, this is a country that has close to 62% of the population of Afghanistan is under the age of 24. Wow. Right? They, they don't even know what it was like to live in the five years of the Taliban era. Wow. And the Taliban era in the past was only five years, right? Yeah. Literally, this is their culture is what has been the last 20 years, right? 40% of that, of that 62% is under the age of 15. Oh my goodness. Right. And so, and so all of a sudden, you know, you have this force, we've, we've had the foreign policy games of the United States, Pakistan, India, Iran, you know, Saudi Arabia, all these, all these folks kind of converging and playing in the geography of Afghanistan and the territory of Afghanistan. And now that it's a mess and people are pulling out, they're leaving women and, you know, women, girls, uh, ethnic minorities, uh, religious, religious minorities, et cetera. To, to deal with it. And, and you have to ask the question, we're leaving a bunch of children. Yes. This, this is to me the, the travesty. They said 62% is under the age of 25, 40% is under the age of 15. We are, we are leaving behind a country of children in the hands of a force that up to now um, has said one thing and done another thing. Right. And, and, and what's also disturbing is that, is that it's a force with a lot of young boys and young men who have been kind of brainwashed and indoctrinated. And we know from, from, you know, from our experiences in Sri Lanka and elsewhere that when you take children into an armed group and you start training them from the age of 9, 10, 11, 12, it actually changes their brain function. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So, so it's, it, there, it, there is something really insidious going on. And you know, what I, what, again, what I worry about is that all these, you know, we've had conversations or the, the leadership is now going on television and saying certain things about, oh yes, women's rights are okay. You know, we're going to protect everybody and so forth. But, no one believes them. Do you believe yeah. them? Do you believe mm-hmm. them? Mm-hmm. Biden yesterday said, you know, we've negotiated, we've, we've told them very clearly that if they do anything to obstruct or attack our forces as we're getting out, you know, mm-hmm. as our operations for evacuation, there will be heavy retaliation. He said nothing about protection of civilians, mm-hmm. Afghan mm-hmm. In fact, the protection of Afghan civilians, you know, wasn't, wasn't discussed in Doha. Yeah. Right. So, so um, you know, again, if we look at the Taliban, do we think, oh, well, yeah, they're going to sit aside and they're going to be, you know, they're going to say all the right things while the international community is present. And when everybody leaves and the doors are closed and they put the lid and no more flights and no more contact, um, then they unleash their own um, fury. We don't know, but this is what we have enabled as, as a global community. You know, when, when um, you talked about uh, how the Taliban used to be just a ragtag group, I can't help but think back to those early years when the Taliban were um, young students of the madrasa, there were madrasa teachers. There were the ustajas, and um, they came together because of their anger with the American occupation. I mean, they were supposed to have been helped, you know, liberate them from from the USSR, from um, from communism, and lo and behold, another conquering, you know. A country stays, but what amazed me that small group grew big because they got all these recruits, farmers and uh, uh, carpenters' sons, and all of them joining the Taliban, making it grow because 
a member of their family was killed in a drone strike and, and all that. And now you've got uh, this big organization that overnight <laughs> no. captures no. the, the entire yeah. country. And now everyone is really grappling and grasping at straws. What, what do you do now? What about the commitment for, for the civilians, like you said, and, and what we have started in educating young women and girls? So how do you reach the leadership of the Taliban? Does anybody know, Sanam? Who it's, it's, are really the influential people within Taliban and are they reachable? These are very good questions. And, and actually, just to add to what you were saying about how did they become so powerful, apart from getting safe harbor you know, next door, um, I remember right at the beginning, one of the issues was that there was you know, poppy, opium um, yeah. drug trafficking opium, out of Afghanistan. Yeah. When you mention the farmer and, and ordinary people, Taliban 101 version was unethical and, and anti-Islamic and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that that's interesting is that when the U.S. went in um, in 2001 in Helmand province, where there was a lot of opium going, I remember an, an opinion piece in The New York Times at the time saying, instead of destroying the opium fields and making the, the farmers destitute, mm. um, buy the opium because we need it for the pharmaceutical industry internationally. The amount of opium that's growing in Afghanistan is actually necessary. You know, it's like we have a shortage for for morphine and for medical purposes. Right. But the Bush administration didn't want to do that because they had their war on drugs at the time. And the war mm. on drugs was going in and sort of setting fire, you know, in Colombia mm-hmm. to the cocaine, uh, you know, to the coca leaves and coca fields and so forth. And they did the same thing. In Af- and, and, you know, it was like, OK, we, we can't, you know, they, they wanted to destroy the opium. And they had a series of experts from the United States going in and looking at the soil and looking and so forth. And the first guy goes in and says, oh, they should grow cotton. Um, mm. And they know how to do cotton. And, and then the Congress was like, oh, no, we can't grow cotton because, God forbid, we grow cotton. They grow cotton in, <laughs> in, in Afghanistan. It'll compete with a cotton grower, you know, right. farmers in America. That's right. right. It, wait, so so the, then they did melons, but they didn't have refrigeration. Then they said, oh, let's let's grow a saffron and compete with Iran. But they but they had there was too much human feces in the saffron because it's a very different way of growing, mm-hmm. you know, cultivating it. Mm-hmm. And anyway, so all these years as these poor farmers were, you know, basically um, without income and, and we had instances where uh, they had sold, let's say, their opium um, uh, uh, produce in advance for loans. Right. And then and then the, the, the fields were destroyed and they had to give up their daughters because that's you yes. know, this kind yes, of like yes. you know, the, the, you're dealing with traf- traffickers and so Right. All these things were happening under under the nose of the U.S. and the U.K. and NATO and, and, yes. and so forth. And instead of helping people actually have a decent income and living and being practical about it, it was all kind of based on foreign policy sitting here or domestic policy, politics in the United States and mm-hmm. so forth. And the basics of livelihood, dignity, et cetera, which was what people wanted, um, wasn't really dealt with properly. Right. And then the Taliban sweeps in and says, look, yeah, look, look what the Americans are doing. Look what the foreigners are doing. And and um, and, you know, we can give you income. We can give you livelihoods. Um, you, you work with us. We won't kill you, whatever it is. Right. Uh, that's been going on all these years. And no one was really paying attention to it again, except for a lot of women. But who was yes. listening? To it? Yeah, you're right. People have short memories. People forget that before, like over 20 years ago, the, the the culture, the history of Afghanistan was in a way pretty democratic. I mean, when when the community or all the tribes would make their decision, they would come together in a, a jirga, right? Uh, a council. And they would consult with each other and not leave until they come up with a decision. And that has all been destroyed. Exactly. Instead and, and of opening it up, Sanam, and bringing women in, where did it go? Where did the jirga go? And, and this, this is, again, the tragedy that you said that, you know, they start the Doha talks and basically they design it. From the outset, it was a failed. We all said this is going to fail. Yeah. They had half the room was Taliban. So they had one delegation of Taliban. And then the other half, it was, oh, the government. But the government was was government officials. Yeah. It was meant to be political parties, you know, because of pressure. They had four women. Uh, they had warlords. I mean, they had 
instead of actually saying, let's do a, an inclusive process where you have the government officials, one delegation, you have women as dele delegation, you have the Hazara or the other ethnic groups as their own delegations, everybody right. kind of let's make the, the negotiations a little microcosm of the diversity of Afghan society right now. Instead of doing it like that and making the Taliban leadership speak face to face, eyeball to eyeball with young people and with women and so forth about what was going on. The international community and very much led by the United States, by, by Zalmay Khalilzad, the U.S. envoy, basically kind of enabled mm. a process that was flawed from the outset. And then mm. the, the other thing is pre pre-intra-Afghan talks, as they call them, the U.S. had already made its deal with the Taliban of releasing yeah. its prisoners and, and That's right. you know, withdrawal. I mean, what leverage do you have? Yeah, Trump right? did that, right, in Doha. Trump did that, and, and, but, but, but the, the Biden administration has, didn't, didn't push back. They didn't sort of rethink, redesign, or reopen the, con, the, the, the talks process. They just carried on as, uh, you know, in the last few months, which comes back to the statement that, that we wrote, mm. right? Mm -hmm. They could have done it. Um, they could have. There was a lot of things that they could have done. And, and we insisted and, and our partners risked their lives to speak in public fora. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Dina and I signed that uh, that open yeah. uh, that open letter. I think Malala sent it to yeah. sent it to all to to all of us. And, and coming back to what you're saying about Indonesia and, and Malaysia, I think right now, actually, your countries are going to be really, really critical because the Taliban yeah. wants recognition. It's already apparently asked the Chinese to come in. Of course, the Chinese are benefiting from all this. They mm -hmm. watched the American fail and they're not going to step in. But they've asked the Chinese from what we hear to help with reconstruction and, and, and so forth. But they're going to need, you know, if they want legitimacy. Yes. We must make sure from Indonesia and Malaysia and other Muslim majority countries that there are conditions put on this. Right. And, and that it's not, oh, it's their culture. OK, so now they say, mm -hmm. for example, they've said they said, um, Girls can have access to education. But when you read between the lines, basically they're saying they can be educated at home. Yes. You know, like it. So, so, so it's really important that, that we have, as you say, you know, the, the WASL arm in, in, uh, in the ASEAN countries um, really representing and standing up for Afghan, uh, Afghan people, Afghan children, Afghan women and girls, but also for, for pushing back against this narrative that this is a song because it's not. You know, Sanam, I, I hope you don't mind me asking you this question, yeah? Because when you mentioned about the role of Saudi Arabia in the creation of, you know, Afghanistan and for many, many ills in Malaysia, in, around the world, yeah? And the Philippines too. Yeah, in the Philippines. And, you know, in our research, at least for me, whenever you bring this up, I will have to say that the Malaysian audience, right, except for those who are educated enough, will be shocked. So this is a liberal agenda. This is not about a liberal agenda. This is what is happening on the ground. You are actually seeing divisions in families now, even on Quran reading classes. Now, yeah. what does that say about you? So the thing is, how do people, women like us, actually say, look, this is what's happening. Uh, it looks very attractive to you. Just like what you just said, oh, you know, you can be educated at home. And homeschooling among Muslim girls now, it's really picking up in Malaysia. And it's always the rich who fall for all these trends. How do, you, do we abate this? How do we stop this from happening? What can we do? First of all, we have to, um, the Wahhabis or the, you know, whether, whether, it's, whether we think that they're officially, you know, being pushed by the Saudi government or whether the Saudi government has said to them, don't mess around at home, go and mm. go and seed your, you know, um, your ideology around the world, we have to give them uh, uh, credit for how clever they've been. Yes. Okay. Because what they've done is over the last 40 years, they've come into every country, every community where there are Sunni Muslims and, um, and have basically given money for schools, given money for businesses, given money for mosques, educate, you know, provided scholarships for students, scholarships to come and train to be an imam in Medina or wherever, and essentially kind of, instead of imposing it from the top down, like in Iran, they've, they've mm -hmm. done, um, they've, they've, they've seeded the, 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 you know, they've planted the seeds and they've let it grow so that ordinary people think that this is now Islam, right? It's right. like they flooded 
the Sunni, moderate Sunni world right. with this extremist ideology. And, and, and now the extremists, it's people think that that's the norm. Yeah. We saw one of the things that, that we, when we first started doing our research on this was that part of the way that they, that the spread, you know, it's not only going outwards into these countries, but it was, there were so many migrant workers going into the Gulf countries, mm-hmm. going to Saudi Arabia, going in, you know, going across the, you know, Dubai, Qatar, et cetera, et cetera. But, and it wasn't just blue collar, right? It's, it's all levels. It's doctors and yeah. engineers and so forth. And they came back without ideology to their own countries. Right. Right. So, so it's, it's, this has been going on for a long time. And, and what we need to do and what, what's really important in terms of, in terms of, again, your countries and any, all of our societies that are pluralistic is to dig back and say, what is our own indigenous culture? What's our right. history? Part of what we're doing at ICANN right now, as you know, is I'm doing a project where, which I call social archaeology, mm-hmm. because it's, we need to be able to say, um, push back against what the colonial powers imposed, mm-hmm. what this Wahhabi stuff is, and say, how did we live together? I, I mean, just as you were saying before, you know, Afghanistan had a culture of lawyer jurgas. It had That's a culture right. of women actually kind of waving, you know, having if, if there was a fight between different um, different tribes or different different uh, clans, it would be the 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 you know women would go with with their with white um, the mediators, yeah, to mediate, right? Yeah. We see this over and over again in so many of the countries we have partners, but it's not documented history because it's women's it's the women's history, yeah. and and um, and it's really important to bring that back into the mainstream and push back against mm-hmm. those who say, oh, you know, what you you know what we believe in is Western values. And what that extremist ideology is authentic, because that is not authentic and it's not indigenous. It is alien and it is extreme. Um, And and so so we have to educate ourselves about our own histories. And that's why we call it social archaeology, basically. Um, And, and, you know, it's it's funny. I I, when when I first started looking at this, I was I was working in Sri Lanka and and in East Africa. and, And it was around women's rights to property ownership and women's rights to or women's role as mayors and leaders in their communities. And we discovered that before colonialism, there had been a lot of women's leadership mm-hmm. and, and, and there had been collective ownership of land and, and titles. And, so, and again, of course, in Islam, we're allowed to own property. That's right. Yes. right? And, inherit. and it was, you know, in a lot of these places, it was British colonialism that came with their values that, you know, the, the eldest son gets everything and the mm-hmm. daughters don't get anything. You know, all of a sudden, it's like pride and prejudice is imposed mm-hmm. on all of us. Right. right. And then a hundred years later, they all leave and, 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 and they come back and they say, oh, it's your culture that you don't get to inherit stuff. Like, no, it's not my culture. It's not my religion. It was you guys who brought it. Yeah. And, and we, have to, we have to dig back and find our own systems and, you know, the, the, the best of our cultures. That's one. The other side is we have to push back against anyone that claims that human rights are Western. That's the Universal right. Declaration yes. of Human Rights was negotiated and written by um, leaders from around the world, by leaders from religious communities around the world. There were Muslim, Jewish, Christian, Buddhist. They were all there and they negotiated these rights. And if you if you do a program in schools mm-hmm. and I, I did this with my children one one year, I, I went into their schools and I said, if you wanted to write the Universal Declaration of Human Rights now, um, what rights do you think people should have? Girls and boys should have these at that t- at the time. They were my kids were nine years old in their classroom. They came up with 20 of the existing articles mm. in the UDHR. Mm-hmm. And they also came up with lots of responsibilities around the environment. It, there is a universality, meaning it, it crosses time and geography because yes. it's human. Yes. Yeah. And so anybody that says these are Western, it, it's you have to push back and say, you know, what does you know, why is educating education Western when when the Quran calls? Right. It, right. right. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Justice. Who says that justice is Western? So, so the, these are some of the things that, that we need to be doing um, and, and the conversations that we have to have in our own community. Yeah. And that, that's one of the things that we in Southeast Asia uh, want to protect because the way we have always practiced uh, Islam has been, I would think, more in keeping with the intent because uh, everyone is uh, educated. In fact, in the Philippines, the first educational system was the madrasa. And the madrasa taught everyone. It taught law, it taught uh, language and reading. And when we go through our history, women leaders, women entrepreneurs were not strange animals. They were welcomed. The women had um, status in, in society. And we need to protect that. But what gives me encouragement is that we have Islamic universities, Islamic institutions in Malaysia, in Indonesia, that uh, we hope would actually be uh, a vehicle mm-hmm. to provide more training, more scholarship to brothers and sisters from the Middle East, North Africa, and uh, Afghanistan, and even uh, even Pakistan. Because the, the, the way we uh, you know, practice our faith is in many ways truer to, exactly. to the intent than the way it has been corrupted in, uh, I'm sorry to say, in some of our uh, Arab uh, brethren's uh, areas. But it's not happening, Sanam. And uh, Dean and I keep thinking that maybe through the interaction of was of our Women's Alliance, this is something that we could actually uh, push because we do have uh, women, we have ustajas, uh, religious scholars, um, who we think can actually handle good coursework to educate people in uh, in, in in Afghanistan. It, it's I think I think it's a really important um, issue because, as I said those extremist forces have spent so much time and energy and resources on seeding and nurturing and enabling, um, you know, in the last 40 years. And certainly in the last 20 years, if if we think about your region, um, it's really flourished there since the 1990s, 2000s. Right. So, so, you know, you, you do, you take a generation and you put this in and all of a sudden within 10, 15 years, yeah. you have a country that has a different, right. you have a, you have a, a kind of a, it it's becomes more mainstream, right? right. And they've done it through education. As I said, they've done it through education. They've done it through the media. They've done it. And, and it really is important that, that there is a pushback from a, a, a kind of a, a community of organizations like ours and yours but also other moderate scholars, the university, the, the mm-hmm. Islamic universities and so forth that, that you're talking about, because this kind of extremist ideology, whether it's in 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 the context of, uh, you know, Muslim majority cases or or frankly here in the United States. I mean, the, the Trump ideology, mm-hmm. they're the same thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and And the challenge, I think, of our age globally right now is that we're living in the age of extreme pluralism everywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Everywhere. Um, so many of us have mixed you know, marriages and, and things like that. So but all our cities, all our urban areas, you have everybody from everywhere. That's right. But, and we what we really need is to think about the diversity. We need to respect. OK, there's the diversity and so forth. But diversity shouldn't lead to difference and division. Diversity should be leading to we're different 
you know, we may celebrate um, our New Year's differently or we may we may have different rituals, but our core values and how we respect each other is it should be about social cohesion. Yes. And instead, um, instead of focusing on that and, and instead of our governments recognizing that and, and integrating this kind of civic education into the curricula and, and, and so forth, a lot of governments are kind of, you know, either ignoring the extremist things or, or actually kind of pushing back with another version of extremism of their own and exclusionary um, ideology. So, Just, so yeah, to support really their needs, politics, right? Yeah, yeah it, it really needs to be rethought in terms of acceptance and acceptance of diversity. But, um, uh, you know, one way I think I, I, my analogy is that it's, it's like thinking about a Persian carpet or an orchestra. Every mm. different thread, every yeah, different right. instrument um, is important, but... Uh, but you don't want cacophony. What you want is harmony or you want them yes. to jam together. And, and, and that's, you know, that's what diversity and social cohesion together means, basically. And we see it in our art and culture all the time. Why right. can't it be in our, in our um, history? We even see it in restaurants. You know, you walk down the street and there's a Japanese and an Indian and a Chinese and a, <laughs> and a you know, hamburger place. Um, they serve different food, but they have the same rules of hygiene. Yep. Right. They got to be clean. They got to treat their workers the same way. It's like it's it's diversity is fabulous, but um, but it's makes us be, stronger. Yeah, definitely. All the talk about the different kinds of foods making me really really hungry, Dina. <laughs> yes, sate and uh, sushi and pizza. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gosh, um, Sanam. I would like to go on for another one hour because I'm getting a crash course, you know. But Val has said it's 45 <laughs> minutes. So it's like, what? <laughs> so that happens. So Amina, are we going to have to wrap up this really educational um, podcast? What do we do next? That Sanam is going to give us uh, her words of wisdom. Any last words for... All the young yeah. men and young women listening to us. Oh, by the way, Sanam, I just mm -hmm. found out from our producer, Val, that there are more young men who listen to our podcast than young women. I mean, of course, we are early days, but I'm, I'm rather encouraged by that. So I what are your words of, of advice for, for them who are listening to us? I, I, first of all, I think that's great. Um, I mean, I'd love to have more young women as well, but I love the fact that young men are listening. I think that that it's really important. And, and in all of our work, I mean, in all of the work of peace builders around the world, uh, we've always engaged and reached out to men. And, and in my own work in particular, going back 10, 12 years ago, one of the questions that I've always that I was doing research on um, in about 10 countries for, for UNDP was, you know, we need to understand the experiences of young men in these contexts yes. of crisis and so forth. Yes. And what's really awful is that historically uh, we take it for granted that um, young men go to war, mm. that young men mm -hmm. um, are the majority of the victims of homicide, say. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that essentially, essentially that young men are constantly exploited and abused by political forces to be the fodder for their armies or their militias right. or their movements and, and, and so forth. And, and if you look at the experience of young men and, and you actually sort of take away that cardboard cartoon image of, oh, you know, the, the, the sort of two-dimensional idea of, of um, a lot of times now people talk about violent masculinity and so forth. But if you actually talk to them, and, and I've done that, I've, I've interviewed gang members and, and ex, you know, uh, militias in, in Africa and, and other places, um, there is a lot of insecurity. There's a lot of vulnerability and there's a lot of confusion mm -hmm. because they're being brought up with a certain kind of image of manhood. You know, every time I ask people, what does it mean to be a man? Mm. These young guys are like, I have to provide. I have to provide for my family. Right. Um, and then meanwhile, the jobs market or whatever doesn't necessarily enable them mm -hmm. to, to provide and have decent lives. And then there is a certain element. So there's, they, they want to be providers, but not all jobs are prestigious, prestigious enough. Right? right. So there's yeah. this element of social prestige that comes yeah. in it. They've brought, they've been brought up that they have to be protective of their families. And, and, you know, the difference between 
protecting and being oppressive because, mm. because in a lot of places we're seeing, you know, that, that, that men will be oppressive towards their women and girls because they, they think, Oh, they've carried this, the honor and shame of the country of the family. Right, yes. well, you know, who says, who says that that has to be the case. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and so, so there's a lot of um, insecurity and vulnerability and uh, we need we need young men to stand with women. And I, I often, when people say to me, oh, do you believe in, um, you know, is the women, peace and security and equality agenda? I say, yes, it's an equality agenda, but it's also a peace agenda in the mm -hmm. sense that if we were just for equality, we would be very happy when they say, oh, you know, now women have the right, equal right to go into combat alongside <laughs> men in war. Right. Which is what happens here in the United States. That's that's yep. been the way that the U.S. has, has shaped. Right, yeah. My argument is that the equality agenda for me is that I don't want any of our boys or our girls, our young men or our young women having to ever face war and violence. That's and, right, yeah. and and this brings me back to the Afghan case. You know, we saw desperate pictures of young men clinging to the cargo planes. Oh, as yeah. they were off. We, we you know, there yeah. are images of, of these men falling from the sky yeah, falling to their death falling to their death and and you have to ask what are we doing to the world you know the again in all of these countries the majority of the population is young yes and all of these wars all of these conflicts we have elderly leaders you know around mm. the world mm -hmm. um, in iran in the united states mm -hmm. in, in, at the un elderly male leaders and they're not going to be around in the next 15, 20 years, but they're setting the course. That's right. Yeah. Generations. Yeah. And and I, to be honest, I don't think that they are being responsible enough. I think that they have squandered the legacy that was left um, at the end of World War Two in terms of the international peace and security architecture that many of us have lived with. Um, and it's it's up to us to provide that kind of a vision and a and kind of a global peace and security structure for our children and for the generations to come. Um, it, it was, it was not the, you know, there were lots of problems with it, but it worked for many of us. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and, but it's being squandered. It's been it's certainly in the last 20 years, it has been, you know, been kind of, it's almost like someone's you know, they've been taking a, an ax at the ankles and at the knees and trying to sort of destroy it for their own short-term interests. And, and it is young people everywhere that are um, bearing the brunt of this. Yeah. Um, peace and security, climate change, um, extreme inequality, etc. Yeah. Um, this is a really urgent call to, to, to work with them and, and yeah, bring them on. Let's, let's have them be part of our community and our family of WASP. Like, you know, it would be lovely. Peace builders all. So yeah. you're referring to the young men and young, young men. women who are listening to us uh, uh, today. And thank you so much, uh, Sanam, for you, for um, giving us your sharing with us your precious time. We can only hope and pray that our sisters and brothers uh, in Afghanistan will be safe, and uh, that uh, when the dust settles finally, we can continue to support them, uh, yeah. even virtually and later on work with them. I mean, Dina and I and many of us in, in Southeast Asia uh, will be looking forward to the day when we can actually collaborate, uh, bring them yeah. to KL, yeah. Manila, Jakarta, and uh, expand the sisterhood yeah. and, and brotherhood. And that marks the end of our show. Time flies, really. As my yeah. daughter would say, uh, time flies like an, an arrow and uh, fruit flies like a banana, something like that. What am I thinking? So, Dina, over to you. Like all the podcasts, I, I learn a lot, you know, and it's, uh, it's something which I definitely want to tell my friends. Um, I guess I guess all I want to say is good luck with what you have to do, right? Because that's a lot to do. Um, Amina and I and our friends in Southeast Asia will always be here. And I do hope with we can actually have, you know, 
we can actually expand on this podcast. Maybe, I mean, uh, what we can do is like, a, I don't know whether we should do a webinar or what, but I think uh, it's something we can talk about with uh, the Southeast Asian Women Peace Builders. Yes. Uh, for the next one year. So, Sanam, I don't know what to say except thank you. Terima kasih. I learned a lot. Thank you. No, thank you. And and as I say, Southeast Asia is going to be, uh, it's always been an important region, but it is, in this case, it is going to be hugely important in terms of how your government stand up for the values and, and the issues and representation of, um, you know, our cultures and, and our religion and, and so forth. So really looking forward to working with you all. And anytime, of course, we're here and, and we love um, any collaboration and, and uh, outreach. Um, into our global family. And I miss you both very much and hope to see you all soon. And not virtually, I hope. Thank yeah. you, Sanam. Take care. Right. Bye. Bye. Thank you. All right. She Talks Peace is brought to you in partnership with Podcast Network Asia and Podmetrics, the easiest way to monetize your podcast. For more information, check out their website at podcastnetwork.asia and podmetrics.co. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything.